The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. As I was thinking about this message in half several weeks, you know, because we started it last week, um, I remembered something that hadn't really crossed my mind in, in many, many years that, that um, makes this passage even more relevant. And some of you that are my age um, or older may remember a time uh, back in the 80s, uh, a controversy we called the Lordship Controversy. Does anybody remember that? Lordship Salvation, Lordship Controversy that went on uh, during that time. It, it, it cranked up in the early 80s, and then John MacArthur threw gas on the fire when he wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And you'd think, what's a book by that title controversial? Well, it blew up in the evangelical world uh, back in the... 80s, and that was the term for it, Lordship Controversy. And, uh, mainly a lot of Dallas Theological Seminary guys were attacking him, and a lot of Southern Baptists were attacking him and um, for his stand. And it's exactly what I've been preaching yesterday, I mean last week. Oh, we've been preaching throughout James ever since we started James. And the question, the, the big question, the main question, you know, it took a whole book to to answer the question, but the big question is, can one be saved who doesn't make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life? The gospel proclamation that we receive is a call to discipleship. It's a call to follow Christ in submissive obedience, not just to make some sort of plea with a decision or, or a prayer. And so um, I Googled it, since I hadn't thought of it in some time. And um, interesting, there's a long interview in July 1980, so that's how long this controversy started. Um, a radio interview that has now been transcribed and is on the Grace to You website, 1980. Would you believe, for example, that someone could make some kind of decision? Now, that this interview is like 30 pages long, but I'm going to show mercy. Would you believe, for example, that someone could make some kind of decision toward Christ that wasn't real? Sure, right? Who's going to deny that? Is there such a thing as a non-saving faith? Sure. Jesus, you remember, was confronting the Jews early in John's Gospel and says many believed on him in John chapter 8. But he didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew their faith wasn't real. John 6, 66, many of his disciples walked no more with him. They went away. They were short-time kind of commitments. So what we're talking about here is, if it is possible to believe with a non-saving faith, 
and I guess that would be the devils who believe in Trumbull, and they're not saved, then it's very, very important to discern what a true and saving faith is. And then 15 years after he wrote the book, didn't come out until 88. 15 years after that, he reflected on the, there's a reflection on the lordship controversy. You can, that's on the Grace to You site too. And he said this, The pivotal doctrine in the lordship debate is justification by grace through faith alone, sola fide. No lordship doctrine is a corruption of sola fide. The leading proponents of no lordship view err because they tend to make justification practically the only word that God does in salvation. And they omit or downplay the doctrines of regeneration and sanctification. Justification is a forensic decree. God's legal verdict that the sinner has been fully forgiven and credited with the full merit of a perfect righteousness. And then I've got this quote on the screen, Ben. Justification must be distinguished from regeneration and sanctification, but it can never be divorced from them. There's no such thing as a justified sinner who is still unregenerate or utterly unsanctified. That's not to suggest that we are justified because of our sanctification. We're not even justified because of our faith. Faith is the instrument of our justification, not the ground of it. The righteousness of Christ, not any work done by the believer or wrought by God in the sinner, is the true ground of justification. In other words... God gives us a righteous standing only because of the perfect righteousness he imputes to us. We're not justified because of any righteousness we attain in our sanctification. We're not justified because of the quality of our faith or the depth of our repentance. God accepts us only for Christ's sake. Because of our union with Christ, he receives us as righteous in Christ. Thus, we are justified because of what Christ has done on our behalf, not because of anything we do, period. It is by faith alone that we lay hold of the promise of justification. That's what Scripture means when it speaks of being justified by faith. But as the Reformer said, while faith alone justifies, the faith that justifies is never alone. Genuine faith inevitably produces good works. The works are the fruit, not the root of faith. And justification is therefore complete at the very inception of faith, before faith ever produces a single work. It is not a process of sanctification. Well, we'll stop there. There's much more. Um, I encourage you to look at it and read it. And I apologize for the long read quote but it's what James is dealing with this very fact that we still struggle with in the Christian church especially in America today last week I gave you five facts that I think explained why Paul and James were not far apart in their understanding of justification by faith I believe this passage has been misunderstood Um, And hopefully some of you came to my side last week. 
These men were fighting back to back. They were fighting different enemies. They were not challenging each other face to face. And those five points were Paul and James both believed in salvation by God's grace alone through faith. Secondly, the New Testament agrees with James that good works always give evidence to genuine faith. Three, Paul insisted that faith always produces good works. Four, James and Paul used the same words with different meanings. And five, Paul and James stood together fighting different opponents. That same words with different meanings. Paul used uh, the word justification to explain the start, the root, the start of salvation. Paul's primarily dealing with the, with, it says, the forensic aspect, the judicial aspect of justification as a legal declaration of righteousness. God declares you legal because he's imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you. That's justification to Paul. James used it to show salvation's result. He has in mind that there's a, there's a moral response to justification. That it actually produces a change in one's character and one's behavior. It's certainly very clear from passage after passage of Scripture that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That point's brought out in the Old Testament. That point's brought out in the New Testament. Justification is by imputation. Not by any works. It's not connected to any works. And the reason I'm spending two weeks on this is because this text has been abused. We need to make sure we've got it right in our heads. We've got to make sure we've got it right in such a way that we can communicate it to others. People throw around multiple, multiple passages of Scripture, which I shared with you last week. And they take this one text in James and say that this totally contradicts the Apostle Paul. Also, I'm spending two weeks on this because some of you have made a false profession of faith. And heaven is hot. And hell is real. The question in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers? One says he has faith, but not, does not have works. Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith... That's just, notice he says he has faith. And the kind of faith that's a mere boast truly bring a person into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So the issue at hand is how some in his audience, some that James is writing this letter to, Claiming to have faith in Christ. Can that claim be a reasonable claim because they just say they have faith? It helps us to point out the quality of their faith. And we tend to think that James is just going on and on and on about works. 
But what he's going on and on and on about is the nature of saving faith. What is the kind of faith that saves? We see back in verse 22 of chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's easy to deceive yourself, and some of you have. Remember I said last week that you might, you might recognize it if somebody else is deceiving you. But you won't notice if you're deceiving yourself. But the first thing we see, faith without works is useless. Two questions he asks here there in verse 14 that every believer needs to ask himself. Can a man have faith and not do good works? Second question. Can faith without good works save that person? The construction of the Greek here tells us with an emphatic no. A person who really believes something is going to do something. He acts. The the curse of Christianity, especially American Christianity, and the church today, millions are professing Christ. Millions belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Yet millions are not living for Christ. Live for the world, self, join the church, baptize, go to the worship services, talk the talk, say all the right words, go through the daily motions of of ritual Christianity only to discover that they've just said it. And the only testimony they have is that they show up on Sunday. There's a little difference day by day. And there are two facts here. I just pointed one out. That is, this person says he has faith. But it's only what he says that James is talking about. He does nothing to show that he really has faith. Alexander McLaren said, The people who least live their creeds are not seldom the people who shout the loudest about them. The paralysis which affects the arms does not, in these cases, interfere with the tongue. McLaren can be a bit snippy from time to time. He does not live for Christ. He does not live a righteous and godly life. No, no actions reveal a deep faith in that person. And notice that James uses the term dead faith. He uses it roughly three times. Verse 17, verse 20, verse 26. Some call it, uh, verse 14, we could call it an unprofitable faith. Paul calls it a vain, empty faith. A.T. Robertson, in his studies in James, called it a hollow faith. Tasker, in his commentary, calls it a wordy faith, a spurious faith, a Christless faith. Thinking about this particular illustration... We get sentimental and then we go through changes like we're going through these days. And 
this illustration has to do with funerals. So I got to thinking, how many have I done in the 18 years I've stood in this pulpit? Well, after this afternoon, it'll be 185. Which has nothing to do with the sermon. But I have done many of those funerals down at Sturs, and they call me from time to time. And someone has passed away, and they don't have a pastor. And you know what I hear more than anything, pretty much in the initial first sentence or two, and when I'm talking with the family that doesn't have a pastor? He believed. He believed, Pastor. As if he believed, so he was saved. Just keep that in mind when you do that service. It's almost a warning to me. Pastor, I just wanted you to know he was saved because he believed. There's absolutely no evidence in the life of that family or that particular person that died that showed they had any faith. But he believed. That's the one James is talking about. The one who says he has faith. Clearly, you can say you have faith and not have faith. You have, if you have faith, you say you have faith, and you don't have works, and you don't have biblical faith. Paul says that if you have true faith, then you've been transformed into a whole new creation. It shows. So being a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't just gloriously change your life. It's important for you to ask yourself if you really are a believer. Your problem is most likely not that you don't have works. Your problem is probably that you lack saving faith. And it's not my goal today to have you all leave here and question your salvation. But just like we talked about last week, Paul told us to examine ourselves. And I don't have any, many shots left, by the way. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul is not assuming that everyone who professes faith in Christ has a living faith in Jesus. Now, you might say, Pastor, call and questions people's salvation. That's rather unkind. Well, no, I don't think so. What's unkind and unloving is to allow those of you who may have made a false profession of faith to believe that you're in the camp with all the other true believers and you end up in hell. That's unkind. And then he gives an example in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is 
poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Those are the sorts of faith works James has in mind here. These Jewish believers never demonstrated anything that would suggest they were saved by God's grace. They were religious people. They could talk the talk. We specifically know from the context now uh, from what James is saying here when he said, when you say to that person, go in peace, this is a Jewish audience because that's the Jewish shalom benediction. Go in peace. He said, let's just suppose that you have a brother or sister, brother or sister, true believers, come into a religious setting and they don't have sufficient clothing, they don't have sufficient food. In fact, they come into the worship service and they haven't had anything to eat that day. They're cold and they're hungry. And you learn about their particular problem. And you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You don't care if they freeze to death. You don't care if they starve to death. Now, you you think you're actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit? If you can see this and do nothing... What use is it? What good is it? What good is that? What use is a faith like that? It's exactly the kind of people he was dealing with, and we deal with that today. But don't just use that one example. Say, oh, phew, I feed the hungry. I'm fine. I'm safe. You might not be. Because works without faith is dead as well. They had their normal religious pomp and ceremony and they had all their religious words. They did not have grace in their hearts. So James concludes in verse 17. So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is what? Dead. Thomas Manton in the 17th century Puritan said, twice dead, dead in their natural condition and dead in their profession of faith, and then uprooted. This is those who never had any vital influence from Christ. A person can walk around and say they're right with God, can't they? They can say they have true faith. They don't ever demonstrate the character and quality of faith. It's just a dead faith. Spurgeon said, The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Second thing we see in James' passage here is orthodox faith without works is demonic. Gives a hypothetical conversation here. Verse 18, someone says, someone comes along and says it, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my, 
and my faith by my works. He anticipates somebody's going to come along and, and say this. You say you're telling me that you're saved by faith alone and Christ by God's grace. Well, I have religious works. I have all kinds of rituals and works that I do. You can talk about your faith all you want, but show me your faith without my works, and I'll show you my faith by all my works. And James' point is those works are not faith. Those are not saving faith works. Then he talks about somebody who believes. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So a person believes, as James just described. Believes in God. I have faith in God. James is again showing his Jewish audience there when he says God is one. You believe God is one. He's referring to that, that Jewish belief found in what we call in the Old Testament Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what James is referring to. We know these are Jewish Christians he's talking to. It's the church he's writing to. And unbelievers in the church. Every Orthodox Jewish believer said that they believe in one God. And so saying that creed he's talking about, what, 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 what some other creed we might say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and you know, you know it all. Is saying that save you? Believing that save you? Hey, even the devils believe that and shudder. Now pay attention. This is a perfect time for you to do what Paul said. Examine yourself. Test your faith as Paul instructed. Do you believe that? God is one? Well, the demons believe that also. The difference is, it makes an impact on the demons. At least they shudder in fear. Listen. Satan and his helpers believe God's the Creator. Satan believes God is sovereign. Satan believes God sent His Son. Satan believed Jesus died on the cross. Satan believed Jesus rose from the dead. Satan believes all of that. And if that's all you've got, then your faith is no different than Satan's. And you should shudder. Demons have a tremendous fear of God, which is more than most believers. Many of us even here today have faith in God, but not saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Faith in Christ that doesn't transform your life is no better than the faith that you find in the demonic world. 
He says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Faith apart from works is useless. You foolish, empty head, you. You need to recognize that true saving faith produces godly works. There's no way that you could let a brother or sister starve if you are truly touched by the grace of God. True faith produces works. And then he gives us some examples. Verses 21 through 26. He gives us uh, Jewish readers, which is interesting. He gives us Jewish readers... Two examples from the Hebrew Bible for saving faith that expresses itself in works. And the remarkable thing about this is neither one of these two people are Jewish. Both of them, though, are mentioned in the letter of Hebrews, Hebrews 11. I might add two very, very different people. Abraham, a pagan, called by God and eventually to become the forefather of the Jews. Rahab, a pagan, a prostitute, came a part of the Jewish nation. Ultimately, she's in the in Matthew one, she she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Yet they both set a great example of extraordinary faith. Being sure of, as Hebrews 11 says, what they hoped for and certain of what they did not see. So he says, you you say you're right with God, but you have no interest in obeying the word of God in order to be friends with God. I mean teach you about a friend of God. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works. This is where it gets confusing. And not by faith alone. Hmm. Well, we'll start. We'll, we'll go backwards there in a second. The full impact of what James is saying here, well, you need to go all the way back to Genesis 15. Roger read out of Genesis 22. We'll get to that in just a minute. But you've got to go back to Genesis 15:6. It's very clear from that text that the thing that gave Abraham his justification was his faith and not his works. Genesis 15:6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is Abraham's justification. Counted to him as righteous. Now, jump 30 or 40 years to what Roger read earlier out of Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. 
Offer him there a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, let's remi- in the meantime, in between that time, Abraham was promised that he was going to have an everlasting seed. Abraham and Sarah were gonna, promised that they were going to have a son there in Genesis 18 and Genesis 21. It is stated that through Isaac, the blessings of God would come. So the real issue in James's illustration of Abraham here is did Abraham believe the promises of God enough to obey God? He was already saved. James knows that. He's already quoted Genesis 15. He already knows he's been justified. Paul uses the same exact quote in Romans chapter 4. He's already saved and justified because of faith in Genesis 15. Did he believe the Word of God and want to obey the Word of God so he could be a friend of God? Well, the answer we see in 23, and the Scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Believe the Word of God enough to obey the Word of God. Believe that God would either supply a sacrifice, a replacement for Isaac, or as we see in Hebrews 11, that He would raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews 11:17 and 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith was perfected. His faith that James knew in Genesis 15, that faith was perfected by this act. So when James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's talking about the continuation of that faith that started, that justification, that decree that was laid down in Genesis 15. It was shown, it was revealed in Genesis 22. There's no confusion there. James knew Abraham was justified in Genesis 15. And then we go to Rahab. You say you're right with God, but are you protecting God's people? Rahab, that story comes out of Joshua 2. Really zeroes in on grace where she was a prostitute. Ran some sort of house of prostitution. Spies went to her house, Israel, Jewish spies went to her house. She hid them, sent them away, protected them. She demonstrated grace to them. Why did she do this? She realized they were the people of God. She was being faithful. Her faith acted immediately, willing to risk her own life because of her faith in the God of Israel. She didn't run her life by the letter of the law. 
fact, we had, there's no evidence that she shut down her house of prostitution after all this took place. She had faith in God, a faith that moved her to demonstrate grace in the lives of God's people. And you may say that you're saved by simply believing on Jesus Christ. But if you never have the desire to obey the Word of God, James says, your faith is dead. It has no life to it. And let me give you one final warning. Just as surely as faith without works is dead, also works without faith is dead. There's a type of work that flows from a loving, committed heart of faith that has made Jesus Christ Lord of your life. And then there's a kind of work that's created to fill a void in a non-existent faith. Many don't have the assurance of their faith. Feel they must perform certain duties and works in an attempt to secure their salvation. You see it in the church all the time. As a pastor, I'm always concerned with those who work really hard in the church but not interested in Bible study. A day of judgment will come. And Jesus reminds us that in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, not cast out demons in your name, or do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I got it backwards earlier. Hell is hot. And heaven is sweet. What a frightful day it will be for those of judgment who start boastfully spouting off all their great works and don't proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ. And John Calvin just wraps it all up when he says it is faith alone that saves faith that says is not alone. Does your faith work? Do you have faith works? Maybe I shouldn't be asking you. Maybe I should be asking your neighbor or the people you work with, people you encounter day by day. What if I ask them, does your faith work? I could go to Home Depot and there's this, you know, they have all, they've got all those plants and trees out there now. And there's always that one that just looks like that's not going anywhere. You know, it's like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, you know. 
And that guy, the guy could point it out, the guy who works there, and I, you buy that one, I guarantee you after the season's over, it's just going to flourish. So I take him at his word, I don't know about that stuff. I take it home, put it in the ground, nothing happens. So, <clears throat> I'm stubborn. Um, you can ask Judy. <coughs> I decided to leave it in the ground another year. Well, it's a bad year. Maybe it'll come out next year. It doesn't come out next year. Okay. My patience is gone now. So I pull it out. Throw it away. Didn't produce any fruit. Jesus talks about that. John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Like I said, hell is hot. James' point is that nobody is justified by faith who doesn't have works. And nobody is justified by works if they don't have saving faith. We simply come to Him lost, broken, helpless, undone people. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We come to Him with true commitment. And that true commitment is revealed by works, faith works. And so he concludes, verse 26, Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Are you clear on this teaching? Are you clear on this? Is your faith in working order you know the path to this faith? Can you point someone else to the path of this faith? We've got to answer those questions. You think about that. Let's pray. We'll sing a hymn in a moment. I encourage you during that time if you would make your way during the singing of that hymn if you have any questions about what's been said today doubts in your own life you need somebody to pray with you or other reasons as well our elders will be in the back and you just make your way back there they'll take you aside and pray with you and answer your questions. You do that. Don't put it off. You can't put it off another day. You've put it off too long already. Don't put it off. Father, we're grateful for your word, for the truth of your word, for such a practical book in Scripture.
teaches us the nature of faith. Father, we pray that you would change our lives, transform us into what you want us to be. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.